You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Becky Watts. Becky Watts was the youngest child in her blended family. She lived with her father, Darren Galsworthy, and her stepmother, Angie, in the St. George area of Bristol, a former port city and centre for trade on the southwest coast of England, just next to southern Wales. Her brother, Daniel, who was two years older than her, lived with their mother, Tanya Watts, in another part of Bristol. Becky generally visited her mother twice a week. In addition, Angie's son Nathan, aged 28 in 2015, along with his partner Shauna and their child, often visited the home. Angie suffered from MS, and Shauna had acted as a sort of carer for her, though whether the 21-year-old had successfully carried out those duties was a matter for debate. Becky's early life and family background was outlined in detail by her father in his memoir, called The Evil Within. Darren and Angie had gotten together in 2000, when Nathan was 14, Daniel was 5, and Becky was just 2. For the most part, the children had grown up together, although when he was younger, Nathan spent the school week living with his grandmother and came to Angie and Darren's at the weekend. There was some jealousy from Nathan about Angie taking on a mothering role with Darren's smaller kids, but it was fairly normal and everyone got on reasonably well. Becky adored Angie straight away and was always with her. Darren recalled that he did his best to ensure Nathan had time alone with his mum and that he himself spent time with Nathan and the two built up a close relationship too. They shared a love of motorbikes and cars. On the 19th of February 2015, 16-year-old Becky arrived home early at about half past eight after spending the night at her friend Adam's house. It was half-term, so she had that week off from school and was making the most of it. Becky had to knock to be let in, as her key to the house hadn't been working for a few days. Angie, her stepmother, obliged and noticed that Becky was frustrated that the key still wasn't working. She'd have to get her dad to have a look or get a replacement. At around 11 o'clock, Angie had a hospital appointment and her own stepmother picked her up. When she got back to the house at quarter to one, Becky wasn't in, but Nathan, her son, and Shauna, his partner, had come to the house with their small baby. Their car was parked outside, and the two were sitting on the sofa playing with their phones. They told Angie that they'd heard the front door slam earlier and that it must have been Becky leaving, and there was nothing unusual there. But that afternoon, Becky's boyfriend, Luke, called to the house. Shauna answered the door and went upstairs to see if Becky was in, but she still hadn't returned. Luke told Angie that he was worried. They were supposed to meet up, but she wasn't answering his texts, which was very unusual. Angie told the worried teen that she'd have Becky get in touch as soon as she arrived back home and sent Luke off. Becky didn't come home that night, and Angie and her father Darren 
thought that she must have decided to stay at a friend's again overnight. She would often stay in one of her few friends' homes, and she was off school after all. But the following day, Becky's friends began to turn up at the house, along with her boyfriend Luke. None of them had seen her or heard from her since the Thursday morning. Angie was worried. She rang Darren at work and asked if maybe he'd heard from his daughter, but he hadn't seen her since Tuesday night when he'd woke up to the sound of the television she'd left on in her room. He'd gone in to turn it off because she was sound asleep in bed. Darren went to his boss and told him what was going on. He checked Becky's Facebook page, but there wasn't anything there that indicated where she might be. When he rang her phone, it was turned off. He left a message asking for her to call him back and then told his boss he would have to go. When Darren arrived back to the house, they began trying to piece together Becky's movements over the past few days. Becky's friend Adam told her parents that he'd last seen her Thursday morning when she left his house. Luke had been texting her that morning too. Angie had seen her that morning and Shauna said she'd heard Becky leave at some point. So Becky must have left the house between 11.15 and a quarter to one when Angie came home. Darren had Courtney, one of Becky's friends who'd come to the house, go up to his daughter's bedroom to see if she noticed anything missing, such as clothes and so on to see if it looked like she'd planned on being out and about for a while. But although a blue jacket, a blue onesie and a green jumper she'd nicked from her stepmom were all missing, Becky's makeup was still there, something that she would never go anywhere without. All of her handbags were in the room too. Strangely, her laptop was gone, something Becky never brought out of the house with her, and of course her phone was gone as well. Becky's dad rang her mother, Tanya, but Becky hadn't been there either. By 4pm, Darren realised Becky hadn't been seen or heard from in over 24 hours, and so he rang 999 to report her missing. He gave Becky's physical description and added that she might be particularly vulnerable because she was painfully shy and found it hard to read people. Becky had gone through a rough period a number of years before where she'd been badly bullied in school and had also overcome a battle with anorexia. She was what you might call an extroverted introvert. She was bubbly and outgoing in situations where she was comfortable, when she was around people she knew and trusted, but otherwise she was quiet and perhaps even withdrawn. Her family explained to the emergency operator that they were worried because she never went anywhere on her own. When the operator asked if Becky might be out of friends, her dad told them that the few friends Becky had were all sat on his couch and just as worried as he was. Once Darren was told that the police would be around soon, he tried Becky's phone once more, out of a feeling of helplessness. She didn't answer, of course. And then he sent her friends home. Becky's dad didn't want their parents worrying, but he thanked them for being such good friends and asked that they be in touch should they hear from Becky. Darren decided that rather than pace the living room floor, he would head out into the road and knock on his neighbours' doors to see if anyone had seen Becky coming or going in the previous days. But no one had. When he got back in, he asked Nathan to help him put something up on Facebook. He had his stepson upload a clear picture of Becky and write a post appealing for information to be shared by people. The police arrived at about half past six, And again, Darren explained when Becky had last been seen, where, and by whom. 
Shauna recounted how she'd been outside having a cigarette when she heard music being turned off and the front door slamming, but she hadn't actually seen Becky leave. Darren assured the officers that everything had been fine as far as he knew in the house in the days before. He and Becky hadn't fought, and he told them how he actually hadn't seen the 16-year-old since Tuesday night. Angie told the police that Becky had seemed absolutely fine, totally normal Thursday morning when she'd arrived back in, barring being irritated that her key wasn't working. She'd gone straight up to her room when she got in, which was normal. Becky's family got the impression that there wasn't an awful lot of urgency on the part of the police. After all, most missing teenagers turn up safe and well. But they all knew that this was totally unlike Becky and were worried sick. At least people had begun sharing the Facebook post and were checking in with them to see if there was any news. When the police left, so too did Nathan, Shauna and their small baby. By this stage, it was just going on 7pm. The following day, on Saturday the 21st of February, there was still no sign of Becky, and two more detectives called to the house. They were to be the family liaison officers for the duration of the search for Becky, and they explained the next steps that would be taken in the investigation. More officers arrived and they collected Becky's DNA from items in her room and searched the house for anything that might indicate where Becky had got to. Becky's dad was a bit dismayed at the effort going into the search of the house when he knew that that was the one place that Becky definitely wasn't, but one of the family liaison officers explained it might give them an idea of where she'd gone when she'd left the house on Thursday morning. On Sunday, there was an appeal to the public made by Avon and Somerset Police for the missing 16-year-old. It added to growing social media and newspaper appeals for information on Becky Watts. Family gathered at Darren and Angie's house and designed and printed missing posters with Becky's picture on it. Then they went about putting them up all over the area and handing them out to people who passed them by. A police press conference with the family came later that day, appealing for Becky to come home and reassuring her that she wasn't in trouble. Darren recalled in his book that he got so upset in the middle of his prepared statement that he had to have Becky's maternal grandmother, Pat, take over. Pat spoke to Becky directly, saying how much of a mess her dad was, that if there was some sort of problem, Becky could come and stay with her, that she wouldn't be in trouble, and that if she was at a friend's, they needed to come forward. Becky was loved, and all they wanted was to know that she was safe. The following day, there was a widespread police search in the area. Parks and woodlands near to Becky's home were all searched, House-to-house inquiries were carried out. Neighbours' gardens, sheds and outhouses were all gone through as well. This was followed by a public search on Wednesday the 25th, organised by Becky's aunts and uncles. Around a hundred people turned up to help. At the end of the search, some items were handed over to the police. A pair of shoes, a notebook and a jumper. They were also told about a bag that was wedged into a hedge, which was examined by forensics later that night too. A forensic search of the house, family car and computers was also arranged and Becky's parents were sent to stay in a hotel in the centre of Bristol. That stay would be extended, first for a night and then for another. There had been no sighting of Becky after she had left the house that morning, which was, of course, very concerning.
On the 27th of February, Darren and Angie were brought once more to the local police station to be interviewed. This time, they were spoken to separately. Darren recalled in his book that the line of inquiry was mainly concerned with their family dynamic, which seemed odd to him. He thought the focus would have been on Becky alone. Police wanted to know exactly what everyone's official familial relationship was and how everyone got on together. They asked how Nathan and Becky were together, and Darren described their relationship as the sort that was pretty normal between siblings, one of whom was a teenage girl. They fought a bit, and Nathan was a bit jealous, and Becky was a bit judgy. The police then asked about Becky and Shauna, and again Darren said that the two seemed to get on just fine. By that stage, Darren was getting frustrated. The family had nothing to do with whatever had happened to Becky that day. They'd all been in the house together from the moment it was realised Becky had gone missing. Never mind how they got on, no one had had the opportunity to do anything untoward. But the police were adamant in following this line of questioning. The following day, Saturday the 28th, both Nathan and Shauna were brought in for questioning too. That evening, news broke that two people had been arrested in connection with Becky's disappearance, and Darren and Angie released a statement saying that they were aware that the arrests had been made, but they were still hopeful for Becky's safe return to her home and that the search would continue. However, they also added that they were preparing for the worst. In addition to the searches in the family home in Crown Hill, searches were also carried out in houses and gardens at Southmead and at Cotton Mill Lane at Barton Hill. According to the Guardian newspaper, Neighbours at the Southmead property said police had taken away a car after the search. Police then also appealed for anyone who had seen a black Vauxhall Safira in the area in the days after Becky had gone missing. On the morning of the 3rd of March, Angie got a call from the police while they were in their hotel room. Darren Galsworthy recounted how it was routine by that point to get a regular update on the progress, or lack thereof, in the investigation. But he said this time, Angie looked alarmed as she listened to what was being said. Nathan and Shauna had been arrested at Shauna's mother's home in the Southmead area of Bristol. The car that had been seized and that was subject to the police appeal had been Nathan and Shauna's. Angie and Darren were confused and upset. The police were coming by to give a further update in person. The family liaison officers arrived shortly after and told Darren and Angie that Nathan was being uncooperative. Darren said that he didn't blame the lad, that the whole thing was ridiculous. After a deep breath, one of the liaison officers told Darren and Angie that they were sorry to have to inform them that there had been some developments and that the investigation had escalated to that of a murder inquiry. Body parts had been discovered in the Barton Hill area of the city the night before, near to Nathan and Shauna's home at Cotton Mill Lane, and they'd been confirmed as Becky's through DNA. After a post-mortem examination, it was discovered that Becky had died of suffocation. The remains had been located only about a mile from Becky's own home, at the home of a man named Carl Demetrius, a man that Nathan knew. During the search of their home at Crown Hill, blood had been found on the doorframe of Becky's bedroom, along with Nathan's fingerprints. 
Nathan had told the police where to find Becky's remains and admitted that he was responsible for her death. At that point, Nathan was charged with murder and Shauna faced charges for perverting the course of justice. Four others had also been arrested on suspicion of assisting an offender. By the time of Nathan's arrest, police search teams were moving into the area that they'd lived and were beginning house-to-house inquiries and searches of gardens, sheds and outbuildings there. The discovery of Becky's remains had been imminent, even as the confession was made. The following day, Angie and Darren were questioned again, this time in entirely separate police stations. As outlined in his book The Evil Within, Darren Galsworthy again described the relationship between Becky and Nathan. This time though, now fully accepting that Nathan had killed his daughter and betrayed him and his family, Darren saw their interactions in a new light. Nathan and Becky had fought, and Darren recalled that Nathan had taken to jumping out at Becky to frighten her. Looking back now, the jump scares seemed more sinister and Becky's reaction more alarmed. He also told police about how Nathan and Shauna had begun seeing each other while Shauna was just 15. For the first year of that relationship, Darren had banned Shauna from entering the house because she was underage and Nathan was seven years older than her. Darren also recalled a time where Nathan had arrived at the house in his car just shortly after buying it with a number of girls in it. Darren thought that at the time they looked around 12 and he'd sent Nathan packing, telling him to bring those children home. Nathan and Darren's relationship had also deteriorated somewhat in the previous years from around the time he'd gotten with Shauna. Where Nathan had been a hard worker before and had trained as an electrician for a while, he had begun to complain of back pain and ended up on disability long term. The two had gotten a council house after the birth of their child and neither really did anything to sustain themselves, though Nathan did often do food deliveries for local takeaways. It had disappointed Darren to see Nathan live his life like that. But also on reflection, Darren realised he thought that the relationship between Becky and Shauna and Nathan had improved in the last few months and he'd gotten the impression that they were all getting on better of late. Angie wanted to see Nathan, to speak to him, and find out why he'd done what he now admitted to doing. But his solicitor wouldn't let the meeting go ahead. The police and Crown Prosecution Service were preparing the case for court, and so Darren and Angie, as close family to both the victim and the accused, got very few details of what had actually happened to Becky in her final moments, and what had happened to her afterwards. They would be left to wait until Nathan and Shauna's trial. In the meantime, Becky's family went about trying to mourn, to come to terms with their loss, and to remember Becky. A makeshift memorial began outside the family home. People left flowers, cards, and teddy bears at the gateway. On the 8th of March, there was a balloon release memorial at St. George's Park in Bristol, and on the 17th of April, a funeral fit for a princess was held at St. Ambrose Church, where just a few months earlier, Becky had been a bridesmaid at her dad and stepmom's wedding. On March 26, there had been a preliminary hearing at Bristol Crown Court where Nathan was formally charged with murder and Shauna was charged with perverting the course of justice. 
By June, though, this would be upgraded to murder also. The other four who were arrested in relation to Becky's death were also charged then, all with assisting an offender. They were Carl Demetrius and his partner, Jadine Parsons, who lived on the property where Becky's remains were found, and Carl's twin brother, Donovan Demetrius, and James Ireland. A trial date was set to deal with the matter in its entirety in October. Before that date, however, Carl Demetrius and Jadine Parsons pleaded guilty at a hearing to allowing Nathan to store packages in their shed, though they continued to deny that they had known what was in them. And so Donovan Demetrius and James Ireland appeared alongside Nathan and Shauna, where they were accused of having driven packages containing Becky's body parts to Carl Demetrius's house. It was Donovan's defence that he had not known anything criminal was going on. And so, on the 5th of October 2015, ten women and one man were sworn in as a jury to hear the cases before Mr Justice James Dingamans, with Mr William Mosley acting as Queen's Counsel for the Prosecution Services. Nathan had pleaded guilty to preventing proper burial, possession of two stun guns, and to hiding and mutilating Becky's body. Initially, he'd pleaded not guilty to murder and conspiracy to kidnap, but on the second day of the trial, his counsel informed the court that Nathan admitted manslaughter in the case. It was a plea that was not accepted by the Crown Prosecution Services. Shauna Hoare had pleaded not guilty to all five counts that she faced. Mr Mosley outlined the Crown's case in his opening statement, saying that Becky had been suffocated in her room by Nathan, and that this was followed by a, quote, deliberate, carefully planned and grotesquely executed plan to cover up her killing, end quote. It was the CPS case that Nathan and Shauna had planned to kidnap Becky because they disliked her and there was evidence that there was a sexual motive to the crime. Nathan and Shauna were alleged to both have a, quote, unnatural interest in attractive teenage females, end quote. The jury was told that they would also hear that two stun guns had been found at Nathan and Shauna's house, which were thought to have been used in the attack. They'd been bought by Shauna a month previously, and the Crown further asserted that the morning of Becky's murder, the couple had stopped to buy batteries for them. This showed that there had been a long period in which the crime had been planned, and that there had been an intention to carry it out the day that Becky had last been seen alive. The Crown's narrative of the crime was that Becky had been killed in a struggle in her bedroom, indicated by the blood found on the frame of her door and Nathan's bloodstained fingerprint found there too. After her death, she'd been placed in the boot of their car, which was in the driveway, and left there until Nathan and Shauna had left the family home at around 7pm. When they arrived there, the couple had ordered Chinese and sat in front of the telly. It was the prosecution case that the two had spent a great deal of time over the next three days dismembering Becky's body with a knife and a circular saw, and then wrapping it up carefully, before offering money for it to be transported over to Carl Demetrius and Jadine Parsons' house, where Donovan Demetrius was also living at the time. It was further asserted that the other four who faced charges for involvement in the crime had in fact known that they were assisting Nathan in a serious offence, if not exactly what that serious offence was. 
Nathan's version of what happened remained the same as what he had first admitted to police when he was questioned regarding Becky's death. He said that Becky had died in a sort of botched, fake kidnapping. He had only wanted to teach his stepsister a lesson to scare her by letting her think that he was a stranger and taking her from the house because Nathan felt she was selfish and that Becky treated his mum, Angie, badly. He also told police that he had been the only person involved in the death. The court was told how Becky's remains were found after Nathan directed police to the shed at a friend and neighbour's house. Another neighbour of the couple, Sarah Webb, said that Nathan and Shauna had been quiet neighbours, so much so that she often assumed they weren't in. Shauna kept to herself and seemed withdrawn. Ms. Webb said she assumed that the relationship may have been abusive because Shauna would not make eye contact with her or respond if she was greeted. Ms. Webb also recalled that the unusual quietness of the couple's home had disappeared in the days following Becky's disappearance. She described loud noise coming from the home, running up and down the stairs, things being dragged, yelling, and a suitcase being rolled across the floor. She'd remembered it happening because it was so unusual to hear anything coming from their house. The police officer who searched the Demetrius's home at Barton Court was called to give evidence of the search, which led to the discovery of Becky's remains. He had entered a shed which was full. Just inside the door was a pile of storage items, one of which he opened. There were parcels wrapped in plastic inside. When he examined one, he pulled away the layers of plastic and wrapping and discovered a severed hand, which was clenched into a fist. Some of the body parts were packed with cat litter and salt, seemingly trying to interfere with the process of decay and perhaps to mask the smell, a tip that it would seem Nathan and Shauna had picked up from watching crime programs on TV. When police searched Nathan and Shauna's home, they discovered the bathroom was the only clean part of the house. It was sparkling, whereas the rest of the house was a cluttered mess, as Nathan was turning into a bit of a hoarder. During the course of the investigation, police had also uncovered that Nathan made some suspicious purchases the day after the killing, including heavy-duty drain cleaner, a circular saw, gloves, face masks, and goggles. In a separate trip, Nathan and Shauna were caught on CCTV buying black bags, rubble sacks, rubber gloves, and rolls upon rolls of plastic cling wrap. Dr. Deborah Cook, a forensic pathologist, had conducted Becky's post-mortem. She had examined the remains in situ in the shed, carefully cataloguing each parcel and its location before they were all removed to the morgue. The pathologist described 14 wounds to Becky's face, cuts and bruises, which Dr. Cook concluded were consistent with a hand being held over her face and mouth in the course of suffocation. It was also revealed during the trial that Becky had been stabbed in the stomach 15 times after she died. Nathan had said in one of his statements to the police that he had done this to drain Becky's body of fluids, something he'd picked up from CSI. Further experts told the court that this dismemberment, even with the aid of the circular saw, would have been much easier to accomplish if there were two people involved. However, it was completed after being cut up, 
Each piece of Becky's remains was carefully wrapped in cling film, plastic bags and tape, and then these wrapped parcels had been placed in a plastic box, two suitcases and a rucksack. The physical evidence was shown to the court. Becky's blood-stained clothing, goggles, a mask, a knife and handcuffs. The circular saw used by Nathan had also been hidden in the shed after it was no longer needed. Then the blood evidence was heard, and the drops left on Becky's door jam and the face masks found at the crime scene were described for the jury. One of the most dramatic moments of the five-week trial was when there was a demonstration of the circular saw and the noise that it would make while in use. This was done to give an approximation of what would have been heard inside Nathan and Shauna's home, and to show it was nearly impossible to imagine that the noise of the saw would go unnoticed by Shauna. Nathan had said she had no idea what he was up to in the bathroom, but she surely must have heard the noise of the machine. Texts and Facebook messages were presented to the court as evidence of Nathan and Shauna's interest in young girls. In November of 2014, they had texted back and forth with one another, discussing a plan to kidnap a 16-year-old girl from a supermarket. Nathan had texted Shauna a month later in December as well, asking her to bring back two pretty schoolgirls, and her response had been to joke back that she would just kidnap them from a school. Later that day, Shauna had texted Nathan again to say she'd seen a pretty petite young girl and she'd nearly knocked her out to bring her home to him. A search of Nathan's computer also turned up a collection of pornographic material, one item of which was a video depicting a purported teenage rape scene. Courtney, Becky's best friend, gave evidence by video link and described for the court what she knew of the relationship between Becky and her stepbrother. Becky had told her in confidence that Nathan had repeatedly told Becky that he wanted to kill her and had gone into detail about how he would do this. Courtney said that the descriptions were troubling Becky and that to her, Becky seemed scared of Nathan. This conversation had happened a full two years before Becky's death. Other friends also appeared before the court and described their final interactions with Becky, whether they were in person or through text. Margaret, Angie's mother and Nathan's grandmother, was also called to give evidence. She described how it was her impression that Nathan had suffered from deteriorating mental health in the previous two years. She said he was becoming paranoid and had begun hoarding junk. Nathan would collect items like fridges and washing machines with the intention to fix them and sell them on, but he never did. They just gathered in their house. Margaret felt that her grandson's dislike and jealousy of Becky had increased over this period too, peaking in the months before Becky was killed. But she said she'd never seen him be violent with Shauna and conversely said that Shauna could often be seen to be the more dominant, bossy person in the relationship. Then the court heard the contents of Nathan's various interviews with police during the search for Becky and after her remains were discovered. A recording of Nathan's first interview with the police at the station was played for the court. He'd called Becky self-centred and demanding and said he didn't believe that she'd actually had anorexia. His excuse for not helping in the search efforts for Becky was that he hadn't been kept informed of what was going on. 
Nathan also described himself as emotionally unstable and psychologically disturbed. Then, after Becky's remains were located, Nathan's solicitor met with police in the interview room with his client and read a pre-prepared statement. The statement was given this way, Nathan said, because he had mental health problems and learning difficulties, and so giving the statement orally would have been difficult for him to do. According to the Mirror newspaper, Nathan had requested that he be allowed to put his fingers in his ears while the statement was read to them. According to Nathan's first confession to the police, he admitted having brought handcuffs, a large bag, tape and the stun guns to his mother's house that day in order to carry out his plan of kidnapping as punishment. He said he wore a mask as the attack started, but stated that it had slipped off and Becky had seen his face. So Nathan told police that he had put Becky in the suitcase that he had brought and then accidentally strangled her. After that, Nathan said he'd taken a few things from Becky's room, like her phone and laptop, and a few bits of clothes, to try and make it look like maybe she'd gone off somewhere. He'd only brought the bag containing Becky and her other items into his flat after Shauna had gone to bed, and he placed Becky in the bath there. Over the next few days, he'd used the saw, and he'd carried Becky's body piece by piece downstairs to be hidden. After this written statement had been read to police, Nathan had cried loudly in the interview room with his head in his hands. Nathan said that he'd lied about what had happened because he wanted to spare his family pain. He said Becky's death had been an accident and Shauna had not known about it. After he brought Becky's body into their house, he told Shauna that the toilet was blocked and kept the door to the bathroom locked. Nathan maintained she'd had no clue that Becky was dead, never mind that Becky's body had been in their car or brought into their home with them. But there was indeed evidence that Shauna had been involved in the plan. The day Becky went missing, Shauna had searched YouTube for a parody video of Frozen's Do You Want to Build a Snowman? called Do You Want to Hide a Body? In the shed where Becky's remains had been hidden, a face mask was found which had Shauna's DNA on it. Evidence was presented that Shauna giggled as she was questioned by police in the station for the first time, a week after Becky was reported missing. She had no real response when it was pointed out to her that the night of the girl's death, she sat with Nathan in the living room while Becky's body was either in the boot of their car or upstairs in the bathroom, in both cases just yards away from her. And here she was saying she had no idea. Shauna had also told police that she didn't believe Becky had truly had an eating disorder, but rather faked her anorexia to get attention, and that Becky had used the diagnosis to manipulate people. Early interviews with Shauna were shown in court, where she had said that Nathan was violent and controlling, and that she'd been a bit scared of him at times. She told police that she believed Nathan about the story that the toilet had been blocked, and thought the noise of the saw was him fixing the pipes. After the discovery of Becky's remains, Shauna continued to deny any knowledge of where Becky's body had been kept. Through tears, Shauna had lamented the loss of young, innocent life and said she felt physically disgusted to think that Becky's body had been in the house she lived in and where she had slept for a number of days. She said Nathan must be sick to do what he did. Shauna was also noted as having acted strangely following Becky's disappearance. After evidence regarding Shauna's statements was heard, 
her mother, Lisa Donovan, was called to the stand, and she told the court that she and her daughter had been estranged for four years. But three days after Becky was killed, while the teen was still considered missing, Shauna and Nathan had turned up at her house and then visited again a number of times in the following days. Ms. Donovan had been worried by this and even asked if everything was all right or if they needed money or something. In fact, the two had been arrested at her house on the 3rd of March. Ms. Donovan also said that it was her impression at that time that Nathan was very controlling of Shauna. And then, on the 27th of October, in the third week of the trial, the case for the defence began. It began with Nathan Matthews taking the stand to give evidence about his background and his version of events. He discussed his diagnosis with fibromyalgia and the constant pain in his lower back that he suffered with. Nathan cried while talking about his mother's diagnosis with MS. He said that his relationship with Becky was good when they were kids but they were less close when she got older. Nathan described how he'd become annoyed by Becky because she would leave things strewn about the house and his mother Angie might trip on them. He also told the court that Becky would be rude to Angie and swear at her. On the stand, Nathan stuck to the story that he had initially told the police, that it was this bad behaviour that had prompted his attack, which was, he asserted, only intended to scare Becky the day she died. Nathan told the court how he'd planned to snatch Becky that morning and take her out of the house in a suitcase or bag. He then intended to bring his sister to an isolated area and threaten her to make her treat his mother better. Nathan then described knocking on Becky's bedroom door. He wore a mask and said he'd put on a deep voice so Becky wouldn't recognise him. Once he had Becky cornered, Nathan had put tape over her mouth and forced her to kneel to put handcuffs on her. He'd blocked her nose to try and make her pass out and then punched her to try and knock her out. At some point, he'd used the stun gun, but it hadn't worked. All the while, Becky had tape over her eyes and mouth. Then he described sort of strangling her to make her pass out. He didn't realise he'd killed her at first. He'd got Becky's body out of the house and into the car while Shauna was out in the back garden smoking. And then he'd slammed the front door to give the impression to his partner that Becky had left. Sitting in an area designated for family in the public gallery, Nathan's mother Angie wept as she heard the details of what her son had done to the girl who she'd considered her daughter. At that point, the court was adjourned for a break in Nathan's testimony. Afterwards, Nathan again took up recounting his version of events. He told the court that he hadn't called for help because he hadn't wanted anyone to know what had happened, that he wanted to try and spare his family the pain somehow. Nathan had thought he'd make it look like Becky had run away and planned to somehow send word to the family home, quote-unquote, from her, after her death, but he hadn't managed it given the police presence. He said he'd just acted and didn't think as he went about dismembering her and he'd even tried to use the drain cleaner he'd purchased to dissolve Becky's body. In the end, Nathan admitted that he'd offered Carl Demetrius £10,000 to move and store items, and warned his neighbour not to look in the boxes. Nathan had given the Demetriuses the impression that they were storing something to do 
with a robbery. Under cross-examination, it emerged that Nathan accessed pornographic material almost every day, including material that appeared to involve underage girls, women dressed in school uniforms and the like. He admitted his attraction to teen girls and said he'd once tried to contact a 16-year-old girl on Facebook because he thought her attractive. Nathan said he had no choice about not telling his family the truth and admitted repeatedly lying after Becky's disappearance and as search efforts were ongoing. He was still adamant that Shauna had had nothing to do with Becky's killing. Nathan was accused by the prosecution counsel of living in a fantasy world. He was asked about what he had expected would happen if the plan to kidnap Becky had actually worked. Did Nathan really think that Becky would be scared straight and go back to her life without telling anyone what had happened? Then it was put to Nathan that he wasn't in fact wearing a mask at all that day, that Nathan had killed Becky because she'd struggled too much for what he wanted, and then both he and Shauna had gone about disposing of Becky's body. Nathan told the court that everything after his stepsister's death had been done because he felt at the time he had to do it, and that he hadn't done anything to her out of rage or anger. Nathan denied that he'd actually wanted to hurt Becky in any way. After two days of evidence, Shauna took over on the stand. She described her upbringing in the care system and said that Nathan was controlling in their relationship. She alleged that he had once tried to strangle her and said that another time he'd stabbed himself in the face with a fork during a fight. But Shauna spoke kindly of Nathan's family, especially about Angie, who she'd acted as a carer for for a period of time. The text messages between the couple that had been presented to the court earlier in trial were explained away by Shauna as jokes. She admitted that she had initially lied to police about them because they didn't put her in a good light, given what she knew Nathan had been charged with at that point. According to Shauna, the existence of those texts and the YouTube search for the parody song was nothing more than an unfortunate coincidence. Shauna told the court that she hadn't questioned the idea that there was a blocked toilet in the house, Nathan's cover story for why Shauna had no access to a toilet, because she said it was something that was a recurring issue in their house. And Shauna said the cleaning items that the couple had purchased were to try and tidy up the house because it was messy and cluttered. Shauna denied having helped Nathan and said she'd never touched the face masks that were found in the house. She had noted that Nathan had a scratch on his wrist around that time, though. Again, she had thought nothing of it. According to Darren Galsworthy, who had sat through the trial listening to the evidence, there was a distinct contrast between the two main defendants in the courtroom. He recalled in his book The Evil Within that although he thought they were both lying through their teeth, Nathan had appeared distressed and cried throughout his testimony, whereas Shauna was composed and reasonable-sounding, giving him the impression that she was trying to convince the jury of her innocence. James Ireland and Donovan Demetrius also gave evidence in their own defence. Mr. Ireland said he had been entirely unaware of what he was moving to Carl Demetrius's shed, or why. And Donovan Demetrius denied any involvement whatsoever. He just happened to have the bad luck to be staying with his brother at that time. The closing statement for the prosecution took place on Thursday the 5th of November. 
a strong argument was made that Nathan and Shauna were guilty of murder. Mr. Mosley asserted that Shauna had helped Nathan attack Becky, who was noted as a strong girl and who would be more easily subdued by two people. Experts had also agreed with the prosecution that Becky's body would have been dealt with more easily afterwards by two people. Shauna, the prosecution counsel stated, was cold and calculated. The idea that she had heard or seen nothing was pure fantasy. And Nathan was a liar. Mr. Mosley was adamant that the only intention you can have in suffocating someone is to kill them, and that's murder. He went on to say that the defendant's testimony had been filled with self-pity rather than sorrow for what they had done to the 16-year-old girl, who was in effect their sibling. Defence counsel for Nathan Matthews, Adam Vaitillingham, told the jury that, in coming to their decision, they must put emotion to one side. The plan that his client had described was both outrageous and absurd, but the lawyer insisted that Nathan had never set out with the intention of murdering Becky. In closing, Shauna was cast as the role of survivor by her counsel, Andrew Langdon, who asserted that there was little physical evidence of Shauna's involvement and that her DNA, which had been found on the face masks and on the bin bags, could simply be the result of transference. He maintained that if the jury weren't convinced that his client was guilty of kidnap, she therefore then could not be guilty of murder. This would mean that the jury would have to believe the absurd kidnap scenario put forward by Nathan in order to convict Shauna of both of those charges. Instructions were given to the jury by Mr Justice Dingamans on Wednesday the 11th of November and the jury retired at half past ten to begin their deliberations. Just a few hours later, at 2pm, word was had that the jury were ready to return. Nathan Matthews was found guilty on the conspiracy to kidnap charge and guilty of the murder of his stepsister, Becky Watts. Shauna was also found guilty of the charge of conspiracy to kidnap, but she was found not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. She was also found guilty of the lesser charges of perverting the course of justice, preventing lawful burial, and possession of a stun gun. Donovan Demetrius and James Ireland were both cleared of having broken any laws. Sentencing took place two days later, on Friday the 13th of November, 2015. At that hearing, a victim impact statement prepared by Becky's father, Darren, was read by his brother, Sam. He'd tried to describe Becky, what her loss had meant to his family, and how it felt finding out that Nathan had been responsible. The heart-rending statement said in part, quote, The only way I can describe it is like being cast off a cliff into a bottomless depth of despair and non-belief. These family members sat in our home, knowing what they had done, and watched my very public descent into madness and despair. They said nothing, and carried on with the pretense of helping us, showing no emotion at all. The prosecution reminded the court that the kidnap aspect of the murder had involved significant planning, which was further aggravated by concealment of the crime and the desecration of Becky's body. Therefore, they asked for the maximum sentence available to be imposed in each case. Nathan's defence lawyer, Mr. Vaitillingham, argued that whole-life tariffs were reserved for only the very worst cases and usually involve multiple killers. Shauna's defence team once again described her 
as a vulnerable woman who was just a child when she became involved with Nathan, and that she was a victim in this situation too. Mr. Justice Dingamans found that although the kidnapping was planned and for a sexual purpose, it did not require a whole life order. Nathan had no criminal record and had, after a delay, cooperated with police. Nathan Matthews was given a minimum of 33 years to be served. Shauna Hoare received 17 years, with the judge saying that mitigation in her case was, in part, due to the fact that her role in the offences was a, quote, product of her relationship with Nathan, end quote. Justice Dingamans became visibly emotional as he delivered his sentencing remarks, commending Becky's family for their strength throughout their ordeal. He said, quote, The evidence proves, and I am sure, that Nathan Matthews had developed a fixation with having sex with petite teenage girls, and Shauna Hoare had been persuaded to participate in this fixation, end quote. According to the Daily Record, the judge had to leave the court abruptly on finishing his speech due to how affected he had been by the proceedings. Carl Demetrius and Jadine Parsons were sentenced for their part in Becky's murder in February of 2016, with Demetrius getting two years and Parsons being handed down a 16-month stint. Both Nathan and Shauna appealed their convictions in 2016, but this was rejected by the appeal court judges, who found that the convictions were safe and the sentences appropriate. A review into the case was undertaken by the Keeping Bristol Safe Partnership, which was published in early 2020 because Becky was a minor and because she, Nathan and Shauna had all had interactions with local welfare and health services. Sixteen separate agencies had worked with all three in the six years before Becky's murder, but the connection between Nathan and Shauna and Becky was never made though it was determined that better attention could have been paid to all three's backgrounds to better determine their level of vulnerability and risk. It was ultimately concluded that there was no way any of the services involved could have foreseen what was to happen. During the course of the investigation for the preparation of this report by the Domestic Homicide Review, it was discovered that Becky had told a friend that Nathan had sexually abused her when she was younger. Becky's mother, Tanya Watts, was horrified to discover this and criticised authorities saying that there was no opportunity for Becky to disclose this information to any of the services she had accessed. The report also noted that the relationship between Nathan and Shauna should have been examined more closely, particularly given their age disparity and how young Shauna had been when the two began their relationship. But there had been no record of violence in the family, but there had been no record of violence in the family up until Becky's murder. Coercion and control in intimate partners, in intimate relationships, has since become a criminal offence, and perhaps in that context, things could have been different. Meanwhile, both Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare have found themselves the target of violence in their respective prisons. Matthews was reportedly burned with oil, and according to the Daily Star, Hoare has been attacked and beaten so badly she twice required resuscitation in the year following her conviction. However, a spokesperson from HMS Bronzefield denied that this had in fact occurred. 
a hand-carved bench was placed in Becky's memory in a park near to her home, and she became known as the Angel of Bristol. The family tragedy touched both the people of her home city and those further afield, but of course Becky's loss had its greatest impact on her family, which was torn apart in the wake of her murder. Nathan Matthews betrayed Becky and the rest of his family when he killed his stepsister, a little girl that he had once been close with and who had once adored him as an older brother. In fact, Darren recalled in his book that Becky had been so fascinated by Nathan that, late to talk, a three-year-old Becky had uttered his name as her first word. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Evelyn Thornton over at the lovely Candlewood Bakery in Dublin, Megan Littlewood, Ailish McKenna, Nicole Bethel, Dan Breen, Lynn Caldwell, Karen Toussaint-Bowden, Kirsten Fest, and Dara Lynch, who has upped their pledge. Thank you, guys. There are bonus episodes as well as ad-free episodes and mens rea goodies on offer, so please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mens Also, don't forget to check out our merch. Head to bit.ly forward slash mens shop to see the logo slapped on t-shirts, hoodies, and mugs. The link is also in the show notes, and don't forget to show off your swag on social media and tag the show. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Head over to expressvpn.com forward slash mens and take advantage of an extra three months free of superfast VPN. And kill some time in this quarantine with my favourite mobile puzzle game, Best Fiends. Say it with me, guys. That's friends without the R. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So, so do check them out. Our theme music is Quinn's Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.